Okay, this is a double portion this past Shabbat. It was Ve'yachal and Pekodei. Pekodei. Anyway, it's more about the building of the tabernacle. Um, so we're asked a question. We're going to go back to our inner temple meditations. But we're asked a question about why... In Torah, do you see some uh, some themes spoken of several times? And the building of the tabernacle is one of those that you see spoken of several times. And the answer is because those things that are precious to Hashem, He iterates over. I mean, that's one answer. Of course, that's not the only answer. But that's one answer. It's like when we read about the um, rebel relation, you know, where... Uh, Eliezer is relating what happened to him when he went to find Rebecca Rivka he tells the story over and over and over and you know and you're going oh so what the sages say about that is that even the conversation of the servants of the Tzadikim of the patriarchs is so precious to him that he has it related in the Torah over and over and over so it's, it is important, even though sometimes we can think it's being redundant, there is nothing redundant in the Torah. One thing I found very striking about this is that it begins, and we're going to uh, just talk about this a little bit before we go on to our um, meditations on the inner temple. The first thing that we read in V'yachal, V'yachel, is about um, instruction to keep Shabbat. Now, we're instructed to keep Shabbat quite a few times also. It's a very important command. But here is the instruction to keep Shabbat, and particularly to uh, refrain from kindling fire. You shall, not, you shall kindle no fire in your habitations on Shabbat. So, the idea about Shabbat being mentioned here right before you have this lengthy explanation of the building of the tabernacle is in itself important and the reason that that is what we get from that is that the 39 categories of work on Shabbat are related to the building of the temple of the tabernacle so the uh Midrash is that the Shabbat queen, Shabbat, was upset that the people were so engrossed in building the tabernacle that they were going to totally forget about Shabbat. They would be just so engrossed in this work that they were going to work even on Shabbat. And so Hashem said to Shabbat, we have some of this kind of uh, thinking in Midrash, it's not going to be that way. And so there was a special categories of work connected with building the tabernacle. That these types of work, creative work that was all connected with building the tabernacle, were the categories considered work for Shabbat that were not permitted. Like sewing, like cutting for sewing, like tanning hides, like scraping the hair from the hides. You know, all these different things that were connected with working. Like planting the seed. The planting of the seed so that you could grow the flax, so that you could weave the, the thread, so that you could, um, you know, spin the thread, so you could weave the cloth, so you could cut it and make curtains. And, you know, all of these things. All these things that were connected with the building of the tabernacle are categories of creative work that are forbidden on Shabbat. And so that's the reason that you have this structure of the um, Shabbat mentioned before we have this about the tabernacle. And another thing that's really interesting as we're talking about the inner temple, really interesting about the tabernacle as opposed to the two temples that stood in Jerusalem 
that even though the tabernacle was a tent, so it was not this glorious edifice. You know, it wasn't this gorgeous building. It was a tent. Yet there was something about it that was more precious than the temple. And what was that? It was because the temple was made with all of these um, plans and it was made by professionals and it was all these foreign workers came. And so it was as opposed to the tabernacle which was completely built with the gifts and with the labors of the people of Israel. Totally by the people of Israel was the tabernacle made. And so there was this difference. It was more actually, even though it was beautiful, it it had a humility to it that the temple did not have. The temple was like this grand, palatial place. And the tabernacle was simpler. But yet it had a, a specialness to it so much so that it's interesting to stop and think about it. To stop and think. The vessels of the tabernacle never fell into Gentile hands. Never. The vessels of the temple did. But the vessels of the tabernacle were hidden before the destruction of the first temple. And so those vessels, the Ark of the Covenant, all of those items never fell into Gentile hands. And it's really amazing, amazing thing. And for all of you who do know something about Vindel, Vindel Jones, the things that he is looking for are actually the vessels of the tabernacle. And so it's really interesting when we think about that. I mean, this was something that I hadn't really given real um, attention to until I was studying the Parsha this time. And I always like that when I find something that I hadn't thought of before. You know, maybe I knew it, but it hadn't come forward to my consciousness. Okay. Now... We're going to go now, and we're going to talk about the temple opulence. Now, that's kind of interesting that I just made that comment about the simplicity of the tabernacle as opposed to the temple. But what's interesting about the temple, too, is how all of this was overlaid with gold. You know, how there were precious jewels and there were gold. And so, this chapter is about the temple's opulence. The floors of the temple were laid with precious stones and its vessels were all made of gold. Even its doors were gold-plated. To live as a pauper and still be sublime is indeed very high. To feel neither the shame of want nor the ignominy of handout is essential to reach this level. To trust solely in God as your sole provider is the essence of this spiritual level. But greater than this is to have all there is, to live in riches and still be sublime, to feel neither the vanity nor the arrogance of pride that blinds one from the sublime, to feel not the power that money can give, but to surrender it all up to God, to let riches flow through you as a channel of God is the greatest of the sublime. To see how God feeds you when you are poor and in need is not, then, the greatest attainment, but with millions to your name or even just a few hundred thousand, it's much harder to eat from God's hand. To a certain extent, you chose your own fate. To what kind of life do you aspire? But at the end of the day, it's up to God whether you are rich or your existence is dire. It all depends on your soul and what lessons you need or what methods are best to to teach you. But the course is the same for rich and the poor to be with God whether in wealth or in poverty. The temple of all places was conspicuous in its consumption furniture covered with gold and laid with precious stones but all of those riches were surrounded, surrendered to God's affluence. 
to subdue the false feelings of riches can give the falsity of pompousness. So, this is the, um, does anybody have a thought about this before we continue? It's a real challenge to us whether we have a lot of money, whether we have a little money. It's a real challenge to us. One thing is the challenge to be content where we are and to surrender everything that we have to Hashem. It's a challenge to us to realize that everything that we we do have comes from Hashem's hand. And that's what this is about is to understand that, to come to that understanding and that feeling of total contentment in what we have, whether it's a lot, whether it's a little. It's interesting how a lot of times people who can be incredibly wealthy will not be content at all. They're always wanting more or they're always looking and worrying about losing what they have. And so... That's an interesting thought. It's the idea of being surrendered to Hashem no matter what we have, no matter how much or how little, and being surrendered to Him that He is our our source and seeing that it comes from His hand, that it's not anything we do, that it's coming from His hand. And, um, I mean, whether we're rich or we're poor, a lot of times we have a hard time resisting the urge to worry to worry about how we're going to live our lives. Okay, so I'm going to go on now. There are no borders between the inner courtyard of the priest and the outer courtyard of the general populace. But Rabbi Elazar ben Yaakov says, The slope of the Temple Mount was leveled and the steps were built at the border point so that the ground of the inner courtyard was nearly two feet higher than the ground of the outer one. What is the difference between teacher and student? Is it only that one was born first? What is the difference between mentor and the masses? Is it only that one got there first? Is there something inherently different in the soul of the master? Or is it only the role of being the first? And is the goal that the preachers reach down to the masses or that the masses produce the priest? Is there any rule of measure that can finally say if the elite few are the purpose of creation or is their purpose just to show us the way? Because if society exists for the sake of the saintly, for whose sake do the saintly exist? And if the saintly exist just to be social servants, for whose sake does society exist? These questions are not merely conundra. They touch on a very deep point. If only a very few reach God on earth, what are the rest of us doing here? To answer this question, we must first ask another. Why do the saintly have feet? The answer, of course, is not just for transport, but that part of the saintly is feet. The feet represent that which is most close to the earth, the base upon which all else stands. If you do not have your two feet firmly on the ground, your soul has no legs to stand on. Because the goal of God is not just the soul, but also the physical body to reveal it as home to the spiritual light that is found within the physical matter. If the soul is detached of its earthly legs, cut off from its physical body, there is no way it can reveal that light on earth because it cannot otherwise interact with matter. Yet the soul and the body are not separate entities. They are but one structure called the soul body. The soul has no hands Without its feet, though, it is she that gives life to the body. Together as one, they implement God's goal to reveal the light in the matter. To show that in truth, 
they both interchange that body becomes soul and soul matter. Body begets soul as soul lights up, while body, soul begets body, its feet. In fact, the body is called the shoe of the soul. Between heaven and earth, they both revolve around the point where heaven and earth meet. Both together are one entity, one spectrum of continuous life, but each one reveals a unique sanctity, a different aspect of spiritual life. So the Kohen is that teacher, the priestly master, whose life goal is to guide the people. He is their soul and they are his feet. It is a soul-body relationship between teacher and people. He is chosen by God for his priestly mission, yet he remains part of the priestly people. His priesthood enshrines him to be apart from the people, the very priesthood that arises from them. His priesthood requires a life apart from the people, yet at heart he must remain one of them. The priesthood, in fact, is nothing more than the transferal of every firstborn Jewish boy's role. This role will never revert back to the firstborn. This role will revert back, sorry, to the firstborn when all Jewish people live up to their role, to be the world's teachers, to be the world's saints, to be the world's goal and purpose. But at the same time, they must be part of the world and remove all the man-made partitions for to emphasize the differences and ignore the essential sameness is to say why their existence. All things are one, yet each thing is different, each unique in its aspect of sameness. This is why there is no natural border between priestly court and that of the rest of the people, and yet it rose above it. And there was no natural border to keep out the Gentiles, yet they were separated. Now this chapter does bring us some, some reasons, some things to think about. Because sometimes we see the differences between, well let's just talk about that, between the Jews and the rest of the world. And sometimes people make the mistake of thinking that if we see a difference, then that's a bad thing. That uh, Jewish people are just the same as everybody else. Well, if that were true, then what would have been the point of giving the Torah? So the Jewish people and the non-Jewish people are not the same, simply because of the giving of the Torah. And we saw this in the Parsha where Moshe right after the golden calf where Moshe said to Hashem that if he would not go before the people himself rather than an angel then Moshe did not want to move because he said the rest of the world have, have priests and prophets the rest of the world have angels in the heavenly court so what would make us different? And the difference why would we be the nation that would be given the Torah? And this is what makes the difference that Israel was chosen to get the Torah. Does it mean that Israel is better anymore than the priest is better than the people? It doesn't mean that Israel is uh, favored in any way. You know, we misunderstand when we hear chosen that it means you, we hear it in a in terms of like bigotry that we're better than you or you know. You're no better than us. or We hear that in kind of a, a rivalry type of... We hear that in a rivalry mode. And that's not what's being said. Because when we look at the priesthood of Israel, the priesthood of Israel was chosen from one of the tribes of Israel. One of the tribes that did distinguish itself. But yet, each one of the tribes was completely different from the rest of the tribes. Each one of the twelve tribes had certain things about it that distinguished it from the rest of the tribes. Did it mean that that tribe was better than the rest of the tribes? No. And the same was true with the Levites. 
they were not better than the rest of the tribes, but they happened to be a tribe that was chosen to be the one from which would come the priesthood. In fact, when we see what Yaakov said to Levi, we see that Levi was actually given a rather handicap because of his anger, because things he had to get under control, because of things in his character that were troublesome. That Yaakov said that he would be scattered throughout Israel. That he could not have land of his own. And this was a negative thing. But yet that negative thing, because of Levi's repentance, because of his changing of his heart and coming to Hashem in a new way, was turned into something positive. So that Hashem was able to use that very thing that was meant to control his anger and control him as being the very vessel through which he could um, make him the priest. He's going to be scattered throughout Israel, so he's going to be the priestly nation, uh, priestly tribe. And in the same way, you know, the Jewish people fell. The Jewish people had, we could say, punished. We were punished. And we were exiled throughout all the nations. So, in the same way, the Jewish people lost their land. And for centuries, went without land. Went without the temple. Went without all of these things. But yet, there was something that Hashem did. A positive thing that He flowed through that. Does that mean that the Jews were... I mean, the Jews were definitely different. The Levites were different from the rest of the tribes of Israel. But the Jews were not better. They were just different, with a different role. And the same is true of each nation. We look at each nation. Each nation has its own positive attributes, its own voice that is unique in the world, its own wisdom that it brings to the forefront to bless all of the world. And within that, just like through all the tribes of Israel were the Levites and the, and the Kohanim, in that all the nations had the Jews through them, there was a purpose that the Jews were there for blessing and ultimately that this was for the Jews to help the people of the nation to find their wisdom and to find their voice. And so this is why, I mean, a lot of times we have to shift our thinking about um, borders and so on and our shift our thinking about rivalries and understand that, yes, Hashem made differences, but it does not mean that those differences are like we see it. We don't have to all be the same, but yet at the same time, those differences do not make one better than the other or make one inferior that's what we ought to be looking at doesn't make one inferior to the other so does anyone have something to say about this okay the different uh a book about transmigrations of souls. This was by a non-religious Jew, but he was a psychologist, and he was looking back into uh, past life experiences, I guess. And uh, one of the interesting points when I read that was that the souls sometimes were Jewish, sometimes not. It's as if uh, the soul had different things to learn and passed through different stations in life. And that's really true. I mean, the soul does have different things to learn and pass through different stations in life. In fact, when we think about um, the idea that every Jew has to keep all 613 mitzvot, in one lifetime you're going, oh, how in the world could anybody do that? Because some of those are for the priest, some of those are for the king, but somehow the whole of Israel, and it's through different lifetimes, and even as non-Jewish people will become Jews sometimes, they're non-Jews sometimes, that they partake in that. Because it's not just 613, it's actually 620. When we look at 
the 613 plus the 7. And the 620 is the gematria for Keter, which is the crown of Hashem, the will of Hashem. So it's all involved. It's this. In fact, we could even say that it's the jewels of the crown. You know, all of these these mitzvot. Okay, just a moment, please. Okay, now we're the next chapter. I want us to get through the whole chapter so we don't have any misunderstanding. And um, the psychologist you were talking about, Glenn, that was Brian Weiss. Okay, <laughs> you typed that quick. Yes. Okay. All right. Now this. Next chapter is called Gentile Intentions. The chamber of Parva in the temple courtyard was named after the Gentile magician who built it. Now this is from the Talmud, from Midot 5.3 and Yoma 34b to 34, 35a. So let's just listen to the whole thing to get to what exactly is being said first. Because it kind of comes across a little bit like, ooh, you know, a little bit strange first. The physical temple in the physical world must be built with the deepest of yearning. It must be an expression of the inner life or else it has no meaning. The temple on earth corresponds to the temple on high and the human soul is the channel between them. Just as the existence of the inner temple can be found only with the purest intention, the temple on earth forfeits its existence if it is built with any ego intention. But whose heart is so pure? We are all human beings. We all have hidden motives. To buy earthly fame, to buy afterlife, to buy God. But deep in our hearts is a place whole and pure through which flows a river of yearning. When you reach this deep place and live from that center, you have bypassed all impure intentions. You can then build a temple in which God can dwell as he dwells in your deepest intentions. King Solomon thought he had the power to elicit this deep inner temple to remove the shells of impure intentions that invalidate the physical temple. He requested of King Hiram of Tyre to help him build the temple. King Hiram obliged because deep in his heart was buried some pure intention. But layers of thick vain ego pride distorted that buried intention and thus from the start King Solomon's temple was blemished by Hiram's intention. Four centuries later it was, it was destroyed to expurge it of that impure intention. When rebuilding the temple, the rabbis ordained to decline any Gentile offer, any Gentile help offered. They sought to keep out any Gentile intention alien to the temple's true spirit. But there was a Gentile, a practitioner of black magic, who wanted to help in the building. Unlike most others, he was truly sincere without any ego intention. But how could he help when the rabbis forbade it? he resorted to using black magic. He built a chamber with a special craft which a non-Jew is permitted to use. The rabbis acquiesced despite its black source because they knew how sincere was his heart. They even gave him honor he did not seek. They named the chamber after him. They also built on its roof a ritual bath for the high priest to use on Yom Kippur and this is from Oneg Shabbat, page 333. 
And from the Talmud also, it says, And the time will yet come for Jew and non-Jew to build together a temple for God, each to shed his shell of Gentile intention, and to each express his deep yearning for God. And you stop and you think about that, and you realize that this is the path where we're all going, to shed all of those alien shells that separate us and to bring us together with our deep intention and our yearning for God. And so this is what I want us to, I mean, after those first couple of things that we've read, and now we're to this part, now I think we're ready for um, a meditation. And this is what I want us to meditate on. A prayer for us to come to the place where we can shed those alien shells so that we can express our deep yearning for God. Does anybody have something you'd like to say beforehand or do you want to just go into this meditation? Okay, so this is the meditation. May we shed our alien shells of intention and express our deep yearning for God. And we're going to have five minutes. So does anyone have something you would like to share with all of us? Okay, I'm going to go on because um, after we do this next one also, I want to do another meditation. Eileen says she tried to picture everyone trying to go to Israel. Well, that's good. And even, you know, if we can't physically go to Israel, that our thoughts and our hearts, our our intentions go there, that we touch Israel together. And this is also very important. Now, the next one is the silence of music. And this one brings to my mind the whole idea of this very high place of silence is praise. The special platform in the temple courtyard stood on the special platform stood the Levites in song devotion to God, while two flutes and two trumpets, two violins and nine harps with the cymbal played raptures for God. Now remember, each one of these people was chosen to be a musician or he was chosen to be a singer. Whatever he was doing, that was his place. That was his purpose. And so it was the purpose of his soul in that lifetime to do that particular work. This music of great longing, these songs of the soul, played deeply on the hearts of those present. They echoed the song of the rectified world when all of creation would resound with God's presence. They roused the peoples from inertia, from spiritual sleep, stirring them to come closer to God. They dragged from the dregs of this dark, deep world those who had fallen from God long and far. But deeper inside the temple courtyard, a silent devotion to God was performed. There, priestly Kohanim performed daily service and offered life spirit to God through the sacrifices. 
unlike the Levites who stood nearer the people to rouse them and bring them to life, removed and secluded stood the Kohanim in serene abandon to the inner life. With focused attention they hallowed their act of offering the slaughtered beast to God. With silent surrender they transformed that act into offering their own life spirit to God. So allow the soul music that touches you to play on the strings of your heart. Rouse thus your soul to seek God within where you can find Him in the depths of your heart. Then move through the temple Pass the Levite's platform while their music grows faint in your soul's ear. Move to a place yet deeper within, to the calm center in the storm of your soul. All inner voices at this place are silenced. All you hear is the roaring of God. The silence of his music is deafening here. The silent symphony of surrender to God. So just stop and close your eyes and think about this silence, this silent symphony of surrender to God. So our next chapter is on ritual washing. Make a basin for ritual washing so that Aaron and his sons may wash from it before entering the inner sanctum of the temple. Exodus 30, 18-20 Now everybody, this next is going to be the meditation itself. And so everyone, close your eyes, take a deep breath, and exhale, but you just breathe deeply. As you have your eyes closed, and listen. This is a visualization. It's a meditation at the same time. I wash my hands, God, before I approach you to clean them of impure motivation. My hands, which embody my means of action, must be cleansed of ulterior motivation. As the town elders washed their hands when a slain man was found near their city, to wash their hands of any personal connection. Do we wash our hands, God, before entering your temple to approach you without ego attachment? What do I want, God? Why do I seek you? Is it only to identify myself with your greatness? What reason do I harbor for wanting to approach you? Is it only to feel inflated with self-greatness? Or is it salvation that I seek, the greatest self-seeking salvation from the life you bestowed on me? Or do I seek to bask in the limelight of the hereafter that I imagine is waiting for me? So help me, God, to wash my hands, to approach you with simplicity of spirit. Let my spirit, pure, enter your temple, selfless in being without ego connection. May my prayers bear no thoughts of how others may see me. May I see only you and I. May I reach that place within where I can't even see me, where you lovingly embrace my I. Oh, this is another one that is a very important one as we're talking about healing. And after this one that I want us to stop and I want you to, everybody to uh, share what you're experiencing as we go through each one of these. And this is a very important um, aspect of the temple service that was about a person who was bringing an atonement offering for healing of his soul. The Cohen priest in the service would gaze into the face of the one bringing an off, a, a sacrifice in order to effect the sacrificial atonement by healing that person's soul. In some cases, the shiny surface of the wash basin in the temple courtyard 
mirrored each one's faith to the other. And so this is the mirror. Now remember when the mirror, the the wash basin was made of the copper mirrors of the women from Egypt. And so it was a very special, very special vessel of the temple. Now again, just close your eyes and just listen to this like a visualization. What we see of ourselves is not very much, only those aspects that please us. We even see in ourselves things which are not illusions conjured up to just please us. But with the censoring of self and self-deceit, we seal ourselves tightly into our ego prisons. We lose self-control, soul control of our actions in life, which then become controlled by our egotism. We lose sight of God who can only be seen by a soul which is free of self-delusion. God acts as a mirror to reflect back our lives, to show us where we have strayed. What happens out there reflects what happens in here that only God could have made. If you don't see in here, you can't see out there has any relevance to your inner maze. So is there something out there to make us starkly aware of all that stuff in here in our souls? Is there someone out there who can see deep in here and bring us lovingly in touch with our souls? Yes, the tzaddik, the holy person whose soul is transparent to God. He sees through God's eyes and God sees through his eyes. Everything is transparent to him. When he looks at us, he sees all our stuff, all those things we keep hidden, buried deep in here. When we look in his eyes, we see with surprise all those things we thought no one could see. When we look in his face, we see with disgrace the tzaddik that we too ought to be. When, we, when you forget where you are and who you can be, you act out the dark side of your soul to really see where you are and who you can yet be you must look at your soul through God's eyes dissolve all defenses surrender yourself sacrifice your ego for soul look at a tzaddik see through his eyes see his compassion for you when you can do this atonement is reached Repentance returns to soul. God is revealed. Your soul is healed. Your sacrifice has been accepted. This is the Kohen priest who represents the Tzadik. He mirrors you back to yourself. He served God with his essence. He surrendered his ego. Let him show you the road to yourself. And if you can't find the Tzadik in your vicinity... Look for the tzaddik's reflection. His books and his students are the reflection, for they bear his essence of self. So this is a very important thing that is being said here, and there's even more to it. It's like what was said in the in one of the previous little chapters we read about the singing of the Levites that when the person would bring the sacrifice the Levite sang a song that was a special song to bring that person to repentance and it was like this symphony that was being conducted by the priest as he was accepting the sacrifice of the person to bring that person to be able to see his own soul to see inside himself and to come to that that certain point of tshuva so that he could truly see what his sin was and could truly come to the place of being very sorry and heartbroken and then the tone of the singing would change so that it was rejoicing because the, the repentance of the person had been accepted and it was healing 
it was soothing and healing so the music all of it together the the mirror of the of the wash basin was one thing but also even looking from face to face was a mirror and we can have that as well if you look into another person's face you can see the reflection of yourself even but you can see that person too and this is a very high thing that we can be touching like this soul to soul helping other people come to that what they truly are and helping ourselves come to what we truly are because we are truly supposed to be mirrors for each other if we are truly who we're supposed to be if we're genuine if our souls are really showing themselves then we can be mirrors like the wash basin we can be mirrors in the world and help other people to find who they are as we're finding who we are so with these meditations that we've had tonight I I would like to hear from you what you what thoughts you've had through this um, through these little sessions we've had tonight Does anyone have some thoughts? Dana says, while we're on the first one, Psalm 19.14 was in my heart and my ears. Okay. Let's see what that is. Also from willful sins restrain your servant. Let them not rule over me. Then I will be unblemished and cleansed of great transgression. Yeah, that's very good. And Alan and Eileen say, It is great to hear what it was like to be able to go to the temple for redemption and to praise Hashem. Yes, and this is something that we look forward to the um, in the redemption we look forward to going to the temple again. And these are like what the whole book is about, the inner temple. These are, the whole point is what it's saying to us inside and to, to uh, bring our own souls into that reflection of what was being done in the temple and so I'm handing the mic over to Glenn okay uh, during the first one and some of my Hebrew class buddies I'm sure can uh, can understand what I'm talking about but the difference I was seeing the big difference in this class I'm concentrating on God 
in my spirit is doing the work compared to in the Hebrew class where my mind is trying to concentrate and do the work. It's a total different level, and it was just real clear to me there. Yeah, that's right. And you're, this is the class about doing work of your soul so that your soul can start coming forward. And, and that's the whole point. For us as human beings, it's a whole lot easier. I mean, for me, it's always been easier for me to do the intellectual stuff. But when I have to say, okay, now I want my soul to reach out, that's a whole different thing. But yet, that's who we truly are. The soul of us is who we really are. So this is a very important thing for us to uh, do. There's, um, as from what Dina had just said, the psalm right below that is, um, I have underlined something that's very, I think, just stood out to me. May he remember all your prayers and pleas as if they were fat burnt offerings. So that's really amazing, you know, because in Judaism what we do with our prayers is that this is being offered up. We had the three services a day. We still have three services a day. But now in the place of the offerings in the temple, it's a, it's a, and we will all admit, it's a sorry substitute. But this is what we have. And we say, may he accept our prayers in the place of these sacrificial offerings. So, does anyone else have something to add? Okay, then, I think that's going to be it for this evening. And tomorrow night, of course, at 8 o'clock, we're going to continue our class, our class on healing. And um, I'm thinking that this next class is going to be talking about the different levels of the soul so we can kind of get that straight. And then we're going to talk about, I mean, it's going to be, it's going to be necessary as we go through this class to have some understanding of um, definitions. So we're going to talk about the levels of the soul this next class and eventually we're going to talk about what healing looks like on each of those levels. So um, thank you for joining me in this class tonight. If nobody has anything else to add, I'm going to, ha I'm going to say good night. Okay, thank you all for being here and I look forward to seeing you tomorrow night.